is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Tudor Advocates' new podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello, I'm Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate. And I'm Errol Parker, editor-at-large of the Batuta Advocate. Welcome to Batuta's new Decode series, a podcast for Australians who have either tuned out or never really tuned in to the needlessly complicated bin fire of bullshit that is federal politics. As the nation approaches the federal election, we thought it was time to break down and decode all of the waffle and spin the media and politicians put in front of us to keep us in the dark. A regular segment on this new series will be our weekly interview profiles of Australian politicians, where we put questions to them and expect them to answer them honestly. Who knows, some of them might just come across as real people. And today we've hit the ground running with a veteran of Labor's right faction, who, like all politicians, is desperate to be humanised in the eyes of voters. For our first interview profile of the Batuta Advocates' new Decode series, we are joined by Federal Labor Senator, former New South Wales Premier, former Sky News commentator, and former American citizen Christina Keneally. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Now, Senator Keneally, I'll get straight into it, and this will kind of... I guess, uh, give you a chance to to tell your story. Uh, I want to ask, you know, first of all, I want to say that you are the first person I've ever met who was born in Las Vegas. You were raised in Ohio. You were educated over there too. So no offense uh, if it comes across that way. I don't mean to sound racist, but can you tell us how you ended up becoming the most powerful politician in New South Wales? And furthermore, how did you become a Rabbitohs fan? (laughs) Great couple of questions. Um, Here's something else that you didn't put in that bio. I am a seventh-generation Australian and a migrant okay. to Australia. So my mother uh, is was born in Brisbane. Her family goes back several, uh, you know, six generations before her. And her mother married an American GI during the war. So my mother born there. She's still an Australian citizen. But bizarrely, right. when I wanted to move to Australia in uh, 1990. Uh, Three, I called up the Australian embassy and they said, sorry, you have no claim to come here because under the law that existed at the time, women could not pass on Australian citizenship by descent. Really? Only men could. Right. So uh, I came as a migrant to Australia, having met my Australian husband, uh, one Ben Keneally, at a Catholic World Youth Day in Poland in 1991. Okay. So we, we do know, I think it's You've just revealed who won the Battle of Brisbane was your American grandfather. <laughs> Although he does claim he introduced fried chicken to Australia, which okay. I suggested perhaps another military guy by the name of Colonel Sanders might have had more to do with it. <laughs> He's certainly got a few oh, shops around. He was only a Kentucky colonel, wasn't he? <laughs> which that's an honorary title. Yeah, I think so. If I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so you met at the Catholic World Youth Day in Poland. Mm. Home, uh, home of John Paul II. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. He very, was very there Catholic too. country. Mm. What was going on in your life that led you to travel with a bunch of fun-loving Catholic kids? 
<laughs> well, in university, I was the um, president of the National Association of Students at Catholic Colleges and Universities. And I think it's important you know, to understand America has like 400 Catholic colleges and universities, a very different kind of system. So mm. I was the president of that and uh, I was involved with student politics there. I was uh, I'd interned for the, the Democrats and um, I got sent uh, by the U.S. Bishops Conference uh, over to represent the U.S. at this at this Catholic World Youth Day. And, and right across the hall in the dormitory we were staying in was the Australian representative, um, pretty good-looking guy. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> so what was the turnaround there? Was it like uh, the next year you moved Catholic to Australia? So. <laughs> well, yeah, I got to say to that point, Errol, yeah. I'd gone to a Catholic university where we had single-sex dorms. So yeah. the idea that there was actually a boy across the hall yeah. <laughs> was something a bit interesting. Who was but- lying about being a dolphin trainer? <laughs> well, you know, you're in Europe and I guess, you know, sort of back in the early 90s, Australia was, you know, bit more straight-laced. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, the Australians represented themselves uh, in the usual style yeah, <laughs> yeah. at that at that conference. Yeah, like um, a bit yeah. of Dundee, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the <laughs> crossword and Scrabble competitions, I hope. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of beer and pizza too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, no. in fact, because you got to think back, this was before mobile phones. It was uh, really before the internet yeah. um, was widely available. And uh, and we wrote letters. And um, over the course of two or three years, wrote letters. Uh, they were, you know, once, once a year visits. And then really? in... Yeah. It's real uh, notebook stuff. It really is. <laughs> um, there's there's some um, shoeboxes of letters up in the um, the closet, um, which my children would probably be horrified yeah, if they I were ever published or read. But no, after after a few years of that, uh, we made a decision that um, we give this a, a go and uh, I, I came to Australia. Right. Can you tell us how you then got involved in politics? Because that's mm. not the first thing recent migrants do. Um, as, as, as you, I guess. Well, yes and no. I've met a lot of recently arrived yeah. migrants who do get involved in politics, and and partly because uh, a lot of people get involved in politics because they've they've been able to come here um, as refugees or asylum seekers as a result of a government making a decision. You know, you you think about Bob Hawke after Tiananmen Square. You think about Malcolm Fraser um, and and Vietnam. And so I think that. I've met a lot of people who've gotten politically involved because they're very grateful uh, that a country gave them an opportunity to escape persecution. In my circumstance, it was more the case that one of the things my husband and I shared was a love of politics and, and social justice, a commitment to social justice. And so when I moved here, as I said, I'd been involved in student politics and, and I'd worked for the Democrats in the US. And so when I moved here, it was 94 and there was a lead up to the 1995 New South Wales state election. And, and Ben was, in fact, a party secretary uh, in his local area in Gladesville. And uh, I got Literally, I walked off the plane and, and straight into letterboxing and <laughs> envelope stuffing. And there's a great story from that campaign in Gladesville um, when I was volunteering in the campaign office and uh, the then leader of the opposition, Bob Carr's office, rang the campaign office. I answered the phone and uh, they chatted to me for a few minutes and then they asked to speak to the campaign director and they said, get that woman with the American accent <laughs> off the telephones. <laughs> and the great thing about that story is the guy that said it was one Walt Secord, who then went on later on to become my chief of staff when I was premier. So oh, right. <laughs> he would walk around uh, constantly saying, I was I was wrong that day. I was definitely but wrong. <laughs> there, there was a little bit of that sentiment too, the Yanks, you know, we won't be told yeah. what to do. Yeah. So when you joined the Labor Party, they, you know, as, as we found out during the uh, crisis with the citizenship is that 
the, the Labor Party asks you if you are a citizen of, of another country. So how quickly were you able to throw that American passport in the bin? <laughs> well, I did it quite quickly um, when I nominated for yeah. the seat of Heffron because, um, well, actually you don't technically need to relinquish dual citizenship for state parliaments. But at the that state time, parliament. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But at that time it wasn't entirely clear and there was also a view that, you know, it was a good way to demonstrate um, you know, yeah. that I had a, a clear commitment to Australia. And I had decided well before that, that, you know, Australia was my home, this is where I was going to build my life and raise my family. So it was pretty easy to relinquish American yeah. citizenship. You literally have to go into the consulate and put your arm up and I swear. I am done. Yeah. I am done. Are the, um, uh, are the guys on the border ever confused? Like we're, yes. we're, when you come into <laughs> Always. LAX and they're like... Yeah, I've, uh, I've been asked for where, why aren't you traveling on your American passport? A Midwestern and, accent. And and the birthplace. And, then, and yeah. they, they say, why aren't you on your American passport? And I have to explain. And I've got they, a diplomatic one that's the size of a laptop here. <laughs> here to scan. Yeah, yeah. I grew up watching a lot of And television. I'm in the fast lane too, you know. Well, like, it isn't like I'm at the back of the queue. The, the fun thing about giving up American citizenship is that the State Department actually publishes quarterly the list of people who have relinquished their American citizenship. And they, they publish your name and the place that you did it. So if you go back and search way back and when I did it, and I'm sure this is not, un- it's like you read it, it's like Cuba, 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 Russia, Russia, <laughs> Sydney, Cuba, Cuba, Russia, Russia. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah, in 1991, yeah, yeah. So Senator Keneally, what do you think it was that drew you to the Labor side of politics? I mean, it seems like you and your husband were always interested in politics, but what was it that brought you to Labor? Were you a union member? The unions played a pretty significant role. In fact, almost a, a defining role in my um, in my youth. And that's this: when I was, it, you know, America doesn't have anything like we've got in terms of hex. So I had to work to put myself through mm-hmm. university. And I worked at the company my father worked at, which is a, a fiberglass manufacturing. And I was on the floor, the factory floor, uh, of that fiberglass manufacturing company, taking these huge rolls of fiberglass off a of machine, and you know, kind of wrapping them and sending them down the assembly line. And, it was hot work it was itchy work it was um you know but it was it was so itchy actually it was incredibly itchy these little glass fibers would get caught between you had to wear these canvas suits oh yeah no I'm, i'm definitely i'm good with ppe but the reason i say the union is really important is i was what they called uh casual work to fill in for when people were on 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 leave and the union had been trying to ensure that a casual workers were could join the union. It was the Teamsters. I saw the Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> also not far from where I grew up, that story. But anyway, the machine that we worked on, when I got there, it had a safety switch and it spun really slowly and you had to stand uh, like four meters back. But I got that job because the woman who was literally a few months older than me, who'd had it before me, was killed on that machine when... You didn't have a safety switch when it spun much more quickly and you're applying this adhesive tape to it and you know, you can imagine what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She got yeah. stuck on the adhesive, spun around and killed. And, you know, it to me, I still think about her. Leslie Lambert, you know, thirty one years separates us. Thirty one years since she died and a few months separates us. And and that could have easily been me or one of my friends because 
the union had been advocating for that machine to be made more safe and they'd been advocating for casuals to be able to be represented by the union. And so when I think about the role of unions, it you know, things like advocating for better pay and conditions, absolutely essential, but they also advocate for things like workplace safety. Mm-hmm. And it literally means that I'm sitting here today because a union was really fighting. In their case, they only became successful after that tragic, horrible workplace death. So it shouldn't have to be too late. No, it shouldn't. It shouldn't have to be. It shouldn't. And that's why it's so important. So I say to people and I say to my own kids, you know, join your union. Join your union. Every good thing that's come for the Australian worker has come because of unions. Eight-hour work days, annual leave, you know, paid parental leave. You know, these things don't just fall out of the sky. They're there because people, workers, come together collectively and agitate for them. That's a pretty good uh, explanation as to why you'd be drawn to labour. Why did you, I mean, we'll, we'll skip past that whole first part of your political career where you ended up as the most powerful person in New South Wales. And well, kind of you a- know, until as what happened with Anna Bly in Queensland, you had to pay for the sins of the party at the polls, yeah. I guess. And we, well, you like know, we all do at some point in our we, lives. We've tried to get Barry O'Farrell on here. He won't go near us. But maybe he can join us for the state government decode series. We'll, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll, you should offer him a bottle of wine. Oh, okay. There she is. <laughs> what, what, that was, you what, can take the girl out of the bear pit, but yeah, you can't yeah. take the bear pit out of the girl. <laughs> well, you know, that was it was the bottle of wine on, on top of the iceberg mm. of... Uh, a number of things. Mm. Anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> uh, the casinos and whatever. Um, so tell us, why did you move from New South Wales politics? Did you always envision federal? No, no. And and, and really, um, you know, I think it's worth, when I left politics, I really did feel, well, that was it. I, I had had my opportunity. Yeah. I had had the privilege of being premier, an amazing privilege, and to be the first female premier, which was quite extraordinary. And I really did not anticipate or even think that a further career in politics was something I wanted. I went and worked for Basketball Australia, which is a job I loved. Then I went and uh, after doing that for a few years, went and worked at Sky News, which if you think about Sky News today, might be hard to believe that I was... Well, it was Sky News in the daytime. Mm. It was in the daytime and it was also at a point where Sky News was a very different creature. Like when I joined Sky News, Stan Grant had a two-hour show from 6 to 8 p.m. called The World with Stan Grant. Now that that time slot's occupied by Peter Credlin and Andrew (laughs) Bolt, it's a very different (laughs) posture. Mm. I was enjoying that. I really was because you can still shape political conversation and make a contribution. Um, But the, the change of fate very much came in a a phone call from um, uh, Bill Shorten uh, seeking me to become the candidate at the Bennelong by-election. And, yeah, I never actually thought I would win the Bennelong by-election. We've only held Bennelong once in the entire history of of, of Australia. But it was about taking up the argument and what was going to clearly be a big national contest just before Christmas and Malcolm Turnbull was on the nose and really putting the heat on on the government at the time. And my husband and I were living uh, in that part of the world. Uh, his mother lives there and our children were going to school there. And, and, you know, I remember going home to Ben and saying, all right, they've asked me to do this. What do you reckon? And I was had been secretly thinking, I feel like I should do it. I really do. Like, And Ben said, no, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. We've got to stand up for the Labor Party. You've got to stand up for working people. You've got to stand up and have a crack against this terrible government. And it really went off and on from there. And I think often the, t- the the biggest decisions we have sometimes in life are the ones we don't expect. And it's what you might have a plan and you might 
have a, a view, and that's good. And I think people should have plans and views about their lives. But sometimes you get an unexpected invitation, and it's what you say yes to. Yeah. And I think you know, when when I met my husband, I wasn't exactly looking for uh, a partner at that point in my life. But here was this guy who kind of intersected into my life and, and made no sense. He was from Australia, and I said yes to that, and that was an amazing change and of my life. And the same with thing. Words. <laughs> Well, actually, he had what I considered at the time the worst pickup line, because I will confess, as an American, growing up in America, I had not heard of Tom Keneally. And um, hmm. that's probably a terrible thing Did to admit. Did he say, do you know who I am? No, he told me, though, how he's, this is 91, he told me how Steven Spielberg had just taken the rights out to his uncle's book. And I thought, yeah. A, I don't believe that, and B, that's the worst pickup line ever. And yeah. um, turns out, what's the movie out, about? Uh, yeah, okay. how do I <laughs> turns fact out check it, that? It turns out, you know, uh, Schindler's List was yeah. one of the uh, biggest movies of all time, and, <laughs> and I very quickly learned who Tom yeah. Keneally was. But I have to say, at the time, Americans really weren't reading a lot of. Tom Keneally. Yeah. So, yes. Uh, North Shore authors just weren't really landing in the States at that point. <laughs> now, can you tell us, as it stands now, you're a federal senator, you filled the void of, um, I'm going to say it, Shanghai Sam Dastiari. He found him. Found just himself, wrong place, wrong time. Wrong time. Yeah, wrong place, wrong time, wrong phone. Found himself in a bit of mischief, and you take the short ball straight into the Senate. That's where you've been for how long now? Uh, since 2018. 2018. Why are you having another crack at the lower house? That's what I want to ask. I mean, what can you do in the lower house that you can't do in the Senate? You're already the deputy Senate mm-hmm. leader for the opposition. You're the shadow minister for immigration. You've got some of the biggest titles in your party. Mm-hmm. Why do you want to go back down to the ground and hand out letters? <laughs> well, there's two answers to that. Yeah, one, the more general answer, is that I miss – what I love about politics is the opportunity – to represent a community and to be part of a community and stand up and fight for them, to be with them at their saddest moments and at their greatest joys and to to help them fix problems. Like that's what politics, the best part of politics is. I, you know, Still, if I reflect on my state career, it's the things that you did that I still remember, the bus stop we got outside, the graphic arts club on Coward Street and Mascot, yeah. you know, the school crossing at Banks Meadow Public School where, you know, those things just so fundamentally change communities. And so I miss that. The Senate, you are, is Senate's important, the committee work's important, estimates is fundamentally important, but for me, what really drove me into politics was the ability to represent people and agitate and fight for them. And it's harder to do that in the Senate. It's a bit more academic, it's a bit more remote. As I say, it forms an yeah. incredibly important function. It's not one, I'm, I'm in some ways, as you point out, an accidental senator. I ran for the lower house. In the middle of that, Sam imploded. There was a vacancy. The party said, can you step up and fill it? But I think the other issue is the, specifically the electorate. Fowler mm. is in southwestern Sydney. It's a, ta- it's a place that I, and a community I know from my time as premier and planning minister and disability minister. I know the state members out there. I know the community leaders there. And it is the most economically disadvantaged electorate in Australia. It has, you know, housing costs that are similar to the rest of Sydney, but it has, you know, in terms of average weekly earnings and family household earnings, it, it's you know, much lower. Its challenges are acute. The people are amazing. The opportunities are there if they had structural support, things like affordable housing, things like cheaper childcare, things like cheaper energy, things like TAFE and apprenticeships and university places. And they've never had a senior minister. They've never had a minister 
represent mm. them. They've never had a cabinet minister represent them. And this is an opportunity not only to stand up for a community, but stand up for a community at the most senior levels of government where they've never had a voice. So when you ran in Benelong, you live less than a kilometre outside of uh, the electoral boundaries. So, you know, we can't humanise you without asking, have, mm. you know, have you bought a... 20-year-old Hotondo home uh, out the back of Cabramatta yet? Or? Yeah. No, we've moved to Liverpool. Yeah. We've moved yeah. to Liverpool, my husband and I. My children are grown. They don't live at home anymore. So, um, But, yeah, we've got a place in Liverpool and, and loving it. Well, yeah, I, I do want to say this for, the, for those on the track that are listening in. Senator Keneally has received a bit of flack from the media and members of her own party for deciding to put the hand up to run for this southwest city. Well, I think I might have received some from the Batuta Advocate. Yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, Cabra Keneally. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> news so, is news. Now, for, for, for those yeah. listening who are um, from, you know, all around or on the tractor, as we say, the electorate of Fowler is a federal division that includes kind of some of Sydney's most famous migrant enclaves. So we're talking about Cabramatta. You've probably heard that. Probably heard of Liverpool. It's an area with a population of about 50,000 uh, Asian yeah. Australians within mm. the electorate. So through the research, which we've done on you, we've done lots, I haven't been able to deduce that you are Asian. And, I mean, I was going to ask if you ever worked in a factory. You've already cleared that up. I was saying, what makes you think you're best to represent all of these diverse needs? I mean, outside of, you know, pedestrian crossings and you know mm. it, the infrastructure you can provide like you did in mascot yeah. at a state level there's a lot of nuance and a lot mm. of cross-cultural sensitivities do you think you are up to it well uh, as a former premier of new south wales and a former minister this is something i've had to do and do quite effectively throughout my political career and indeed in the state seat of Heffron has a very similar profile to Fowler. Half the people there are born overseas, nearly three quarters have at least one parent born overseas and an incredible mixture. You're right about Australians of Asian background, Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Laos, Quite notably, Fowler also has uh, the highest um, number of, of Bosnians, the highest number of Assyrians, a very high number of Armenians. It has a significant Italian um, immigrant community, that one being maybe in the second generation now. Um, a lot of concrete. There's a lot of diversity. Like Fowler is amazing in that it literally is the whole world living there. It yeah. is literally the whole world living there. You can walk down streets in Fowler and hear people speaking Aramaic, the language of Jesus, the Mandaean community. And so, you know, it, it's an incredible example of multiculturalism. We say Australia is the most multicultural nation, successful multicultural nation on earth, and it is. But I think, you know, I think you would be struggle to find anywhere in Australia where that is most well demonstrated than Fowler. And, you know, you talk about Americans. I would just note that the liberal mayor of Liverpool, one Mr. Ned Manoon, lovely guy, by the way, is also American. You know, yeah. it is literally quite a diverse, extraordinary place. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the benefits of coming as the former premier is many of these community groups, you know, the Chinese Buddhist Association, the Vietnamese community in Australia, they have same leadership structure that they had and the same people and, and the people I know and I've known for, for more than a decade now. So it's it's really been lovely, the welcome that I have received in, in coming back to a, a lower house seat uh, in that community. Have you ever tried Carver? 
Yes. It's in the the in the actual yes. Fijian Indian supermarkets. Yes. So that's, yes. That's the key. Under, yeah, I've had enough. my my brother-in-law lived in Fiji for a while, mm-hmm. and in fact, my niece is from Fiji. But uh, I, I can't say it's the, my favorite thing. But uh, yes, yeah. I have tried it. <laughs> okay, we'll move on yeah. past the eligibility yeah. now. Uh, <laughs> You did not inhale. <laughs> I did not inhale the carver. <laughs> Senator Keneally, the current government, so not your mob, the current government is facing quite a lot of criticism for the kind of bumbling management of mm. this pandemic. Yeah. Now, the public was initially quite sympathetic to the shifting goalposts and the targets and the you know, the rapidly changing plans that Scotty was putting on the table. Because there was, a, um, unlike the bushfires, with the pandemic, there was this uh, feeling, you know, amongst the population, the electorate, that he's only building the plane as he's flying it, so are we. You know, there was that mm-hmm. feeling. But now it's gotten to the point where the noise and the criticisms kind of looks like it might leave a lasting legacy on mm-hmm. the man. Can you tell us, uh, Bill Shorten won that last election, how would have Labor handled it any different? few things. I make this observation. We're in the middle of an almost unprecedented crisis, particularly in modern Australian history, and the role of the federal government has actually shrunk. Never before in a crisis has this federal, the national government shrunk its responsibilities. And yet things like aged care, which is clearly a federal government responsibility, quarantine, the international border, the federal government actually stepped back, not stepped up. And I think when we look back at this pandemic, when we find, when we get past it and we will at some point have some kind of examination of the government's response, but I think even history will judge, the extraordinary thing is the absence of federal leadership. The fact that we've had states going their own way on things like state borders, making their own calls about how many people from overseas can come into their jurisdiction – that's extraordinary at, at, at a level that I don't think that we've we've kind of become normalized to it, but it is actually quite extraordinary. And when National Cabinet, the so-called National Cabinet first started, we welcomed it because we kind of thought this could be good. You know, you've got the premiers and the prime minister. They're going to come up with a national plan. They're going to work together. And it so quickly broke down because, you know, when we had a liberal premier in Gladys Berejiklian and a labor premier in Dan Andrews with the most popular state saying, hey, schools cannot open during the the height of this pandemic. And the prime minister saying, no, I want them open. And they had to, against the prime minister, had to take decisions in the best interest of their citizens. And that's, into my mind, a point where the prime minister was playing a political game, Mm. an ideological game. Do you think he wanted to, he wanted, he was waiting until one of them dissented from the National Cabinet so that he could say that it was on them? Yeah, this is my perennial question about Mr Morrison. Is he a manipulative evil genius or is he just bumbling through Scotty from marketing, throwing spaghetti on a wall to find Mm. out what sticks? (laughs) It's possible that was the devious plan or it's possible he just took a view, I'm going to, if I duck under this and let other people Mm. take the blame... I won't, none of this will stick to me. So you're saying you're not really that confident in his leadership? <laughs> Breaking news. <laughs> no, I don't, ever, I, no, I don't think he wanted ever to be the Prime Minister, really. I mean, he was just in that room and they were like, you. Oh, I, I disagree. I <laughs> reckon, it's like, do, you reckon like, they, do you reckon he was sharpening knives? Like, I, reckon, I reckon the manipulation that was going on was quite extraordinary. Yeah. You got any goss you want to give us? Like, you're on a- 
Oh, uh, no, not gossip in that I'm not inside the, the Liberal Party. I don't know what exactly what's going on. But you read things like Nikki Sava's book um, and others where, you know, it quite clearly there was a machination of let Julie Bishop go out and do this, let Peter Dutton go out and do that. We're going to hold this back. We're going to, you know, put my arm around Malcolm Turnbull in the courtyard and say, this is my prime minister and I've got ambition for him and then mm. knife him in the back 48 hours or whatever it was mm. later, you know, day, days later. Who, in your opinion, because we want gossip now, this is all part of the Decode series, who do you reckon, and you can just say, because we'll say our theories, who do you reckon sent that message to Gladys? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but I I, I, I tell you this. I tell nah, you, no, but I, I, close, I will say this. I will say this. I see the government out now. I saw, heard Greg Hunt do it. I've heard the Prime Minister do it. Say, well, we don't believe that's real. Mm-hmm. Let me just be clear about something. I know the journalist who has the messages. I hosted a show with him on Sky News. I know him incredibly well, Peter Van Onselen. He hasn't made this up. This is no. real. This it, is genuinely real. Even we've seen the text messages. It's just, you know, yep. who, who wants to get sued first? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Warren, the, is it Warren I mean, Inch? Warren Inch. I don't think he's in The cabinet. only assets I have in this world is this MacBook and an, <laughs> N- this and, yeah. and an NC Fairlane. Well, that's, that's why, the, we're, that's why yeah. we're the ones who are going to eventually leak it. But do you think that there's like a something happening right now? Do you think there might be a collapse in the near future? Because he has a, a way of coming back, as do a lot of leaders. And, and oh. we've seen it. We see it. And we see it with Labor as well. We see it with... Um, Peter Beattie was a great example of this. Come out, mm-hmm. and he'd apologise, he'd back up, he'd come back, and then there'd be a dead cat on the table. It was a bit more subtle when he did it. He certainly didn't host press conferences with yeah, Boris Peter Beattie had a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Who wants to yes. talk about Expo again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wants well, to wasn't de- that a great time for Brisbane? De- let's deport Djokovic. Right? <laughs> He's a bit more subtle uh, than that. But Labor, Labor actually, you could argue, have pioneered this in many ways, in, in this this ability to keep moving forward. Mm. You know, Labor, mm. Labor has won in opposition twice in about 100 years, but when they're in, they're in, and they stay, and they stay in. What well, do you think? It's good, though, that now they've got that, you know, that anti-knife law. Yeah. Where, you know, you know, like, like if Albo wins, he's going to do four years yeah, yeah. at the mm. very minimum. So are you asking me, oh. are they going to get rid of Scott Morris? Do you, yeah, I'm do, trying do, you, to, do you reckon, that, do you reckon the they're in turmoil? Oh, they're, they're absolutely in turmoil. They're yeah. absolutely in turmoil. Whether that mount remounts to a leadership challenge remains to be seen. It would be a pretty, be a pretty uh, risky move, you'd think, right now. Yeah. But are they in a world of pain? Yes, they they don't like each other. Clearly, they're at each other's throats here in New South Wales. Mm-hmm. The libs don't like the Nats. The Nats don't like the libs. The libs don't like each other. Clearly, some people don't like the prime minister. Then, uh, so. Yeah, I think the thing about those text messages that really stuck out to me, though, yeah, the language was pretty full on about you know the names that he was called, but yeah, psycho. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that stuck out to me was when Gladys Berejiklian said, "You know, people will die today," and he's playing politics, and I think that does him more harm because, and I think it does him more harm for this reason. People expect you know, know, I'm not going to you like. Some of my colleagues, they're not going to like me, whatever. You know, that yeah. that's the nature of any workplace, right? But the idea that um, the public already have a suspicion 
that mm-hmm. Scott Morrison plays politics and the I don't hold a hose mate yeah. is the line that nailed has defined it. him and oh. nailed it. And what these text messages just confirm is what people had already suspected. And I think that's the damaging part for him. Mm. So we have to ask you some regional focus questions being, oh. you know, a regional broadcaster. Okay. Over the past couple of years, the federal government has done its best to uh, patch up relations with one of our biggest trade partners in China. Mm. Do you think that particularly the more primary industries of mm. Australia, you know, in agriculture, would they be better off under a Labor government moving forward? I mean, a lot of people in the bush are looking to re-establish ties with mm. um, our greatest marketplace. Yeah, look, the tariffs and the, the barriers to our exports uh, is a significant concern and it has been for some time. And it is true to say that the posture of China has changed, their approach has changed, and that's going to be the case no matter who's in government, right? Yeah. And you know, a change of government in Australia isn't necessarily going to change how China behaves. I think the, the important thing here is you know, what can we do about it? And you know, one the hyping up of domestic political arguments for domestic political um, purposes about China doesn't help. It doesn't help. Two, trying to resolve some of these and work through them with China would be a, a more appropriate approach. And, you know, for example, there are measures that Labor has supported, like cases to the World Trade Organization and the like, you know, insisting upon the rules of the road when it comes to trade. But I think the other thing to think about when contemplating an approach to China is that that point about the domestic politics. And let me just sit on that for a second, because what we have is a government that is really breaking what I call a bipartisan compact in Australia. We have a bipartisan approach by and large to foreign policy and national security because it should be in the national interest. It shouldn't become a political football for domestic political purposes. And yet we've seen that in recent days by a prime minister who I do think is desperate, who I do think has a party in turmoil and who's who's seen his, his electoral fortunes really suffering. And therefore I suspect he's trying to manufacture these debates. What we will do is take the politics out of it. We will work with exporters to help them diversify their access to other markets because under this government, not only have we had the barriers to trade imposed by China, but we've also become more dependent on China. Like we've become more concentrated in exporting to China. So I think that's the the other side of this is we should be working hard to get those barriers removed with China but we should also be working hard to diversify the markets that our exporters have access to. There's a great book that I think a lot of people in your party should read called Breaking the Sheep's Back about mm. the wool crash. Mm. Um, I know at the time it felt like uh, for the sheep and cattle graziers that uh, Labor would, was no, in no way interested in reading that book, but it's about when Australia held on too long to England and, mm-hmm. and, and didn't make the move on the American market yep. when they should have. Yep. The wool board's saying that 93% of their exports go to China. Mm. And they're taking that to a government right now saying, this is a concern of ours. And the response is, you need to diversify. Yeah. How would you, in government, as Mm. Labor, on behalf of um, almost every one of these producers in an electorate that has no interest in helping you get into power, (laughs) how would you help an industry like that diversify? Yeah, so one, uh, many of this will fall under not my portfolio responsibilities, but our our Shadow Minister for Trade, Madeleine King. But I do think it is about 
you know, sitting down and saying, okay, let's talk about the markets that you do want to get into and what barriers are in place and what can government do to help remove them. Let me give you, for example, an area I know better, which is, you know, around the international student market, because they are similarly uh, dependent on China, right? Yeah. And they have similarly had the our yeah. higher education is similarly faced, you know, with the the border closure, a real collapse in its revenue, its funding, yeah. and the benefits. It's that the only come. way you can get into WI now. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so, in that circumstance, you know, it's like government set up a set of rules and conditions and funding rules around universities that pretty much funneled them into that. And universities had been raising a flag and saying, this is a problem for us. So in that circumstance, it's like, okay, what are the opportunities to diversify funding? You know, what do you need this funding for? Research. Okay, when we saw the prime minister make a big announcement this week about research funding, you know, but our universities have been putting up a red flag for years saying our funding is too dependent on this. And then what are the other student markets we should be looking at? Um, and what are the things we should be doing? So let me give you an example. In the pandemic, while the borders have been closed, we haven't had any international students coming. During that time, countries like Canada and the United States were out processing student applications, visa applications, and giving guaranteed visa spots for as soon as their borders opened. So not only did we lose all the people that would have come here during the pandemic, we now have potentially lost a whole lot of people who would have come next year when the borders are fully, hopefully fully opened because other countries made changes to their rules and their processes. And when you talk about wool, I don't know wool yeah. well enough, but I imagine that there are changes around you know, rules, whether it's in trade agreements or bilaterals or multilaterals, where you could facilitate things. The power of government to remove barriers, to give opportunities to people, whether they're exporters or a kid who wants to go to university or a mom who wants to access cheaper childcare, all of these things are the role that government can play to remove barriers and give people an opportunity to get ahead. Yeah, I'm well, sorry I stumped you with wool. I mean, I know it's not your expertise and uh, I'll be asking a little proud these same questions. So he's coming <laughs> on in the next couple of weeks. What I do want to ask you about is, you know, something much more close to your heart is... I mean, aside from the policies that Albanese outlined in his press club address, uh, what do you personally want to deliver? Outside of your electorate, mm. you can look at your local stuff and you can talk about what you want to bring the people, you know, in Fowler. But for the Australian people, the one thing that you would like to deliver? We need to reset the migration program. Yeah. The borders have been shut. This is an opportunity that Australia has never had before and may not have for many years into the future. And why do we need to reset it? Because over the last two decades, our migration program has grown increasingly reliant on temporary migration. We risk coming a guest worker nation where we have people who come, a permanent temporary class of people who do not have access to the rights and the services that Australians enjoy. Australia has always been a country built by permanent migration. People came here, they settled, they started businesses, they raised families. John Howard said, you either invite someone to come here permanently or you don't invite them at all. Over the last two decades, though, we have just grown increasingly reliant on temporary migration. There are, Before the pandemic, there were two million temporary migrants in Australia. That was projected to go to three million within a decade. Yeah. And we saw during the pandemic, didn't we, what that meant? You know, those international students lining up at food banks and charities, yeah. people just left with nothing. Especially too in the bush, you know, you've got yep. all these small towns like Bill Wheeler yep. that, you know, had some workers from overseas and then just got taken away overnight. I yeah, mean, and, like, and is that part of where 
Uh, I think that that is a whole nother question on the and and you ask, you know, what is what is something else I want to do? as Minister for Immigration, resolve the Bilawila family circumstances. That is just $40 million in counting that we've spent on on trying to export a family that the community wants. And in fact, the father's Nades, who I've met, the family, he's a forklift driver. Hey, you know, let's not get kids, maybe get someone who's got the license. $40 million could buy... A periscope on one of our new submarines. I mean, like this, <laughs> in in 20-whenever. Well, and um, how yes. about the Park Hotel? Would you like to see them going back uh, I would like to s- servicing, you know, the roving travellers of, of Well, I think Australia. the amount of money that we have spent on keeping people locked up in hotels is something the government really should answer for. And, you know, the one thing why I will agree with Peter Dutton, when he was Minister for Home Affairs, he was starting to get people out of those and let those people live in the community. It's better for the taxpayer. It's better for those people. A lot of these people are in immigration detention because they're actually waiting to go somewhere else. Mm. You know, some of them have offers to go to the United States under the, the deal that we've got with them. And so the government needs to explain why they're keeping those folks at something like $900 a night locked up in a hotel. It's not good for the taxpayer and it's not good for them. No. But my next question is, who's going to pick our fruit if we don't have Pacific Islanders to enslave on $70 a well, week? Well, we shouldn't be. I think exploitation there nomads. is the problem. <laughs> exploitation there is a huge problem. And when you talk about temporary migration, one of the problems around having a, a, a guest worker kind of model for employment is that people are vulnerable to exploitation because of their temporary status. And that, you know, whether they are working cash in hand in a pub in Sydney or picking fruit on a farm in the Northern Territory or Queensland, if they have a temporary status, if their visa condition ties them to an employer, if they're employed by a labor hire company, um, they are oh, just yeah. so labor vulnerable. So, yeah. so for example- A couple of we, bunk beds in a, in a shipping container. That's, um, if, if their wage have been eroded entirely by these spurious charges around accommodation and food and mm-hmm. things that that really just mean they end up working for a few cents in an hour. Yeah, Char- charging them for the for the beef strong. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. and and the th- I've, I've got to say, I've met a lot of farmers who have tried to do the right thing, and they're often undercut by these labor hire companies. And so things like labor's, uh, we we want to have a national registration scheme for labor hire companies. You know, we um, welcome the Fair Work Commission decision recently to ensure that people working on farms have to be paid the minimum wage. You know, I think there need to be more to be done around enforcement and inspection of those conditions. Uh, but, you know, the Pacific Labor Scheme, which brings people in from the Pacific Islands to work here temporarily to be able to send money back home, it's actually a really great idea. Yeah. Pro- badly implemented by this government. It works if it's done properly. That's right, because it works not just to provide the labour that we need for horticulture, but it actually works to provide money that gets remitted or sent back home it should be part of our Pacific step up, you know. And if, if Australia is not engaged with the Pacific Islands, the blunt reality is other countries will yeah. step in to fill that space and China will be one. You want that international Chinese, airport in the Solomon Islands? Yeah, there's yeah. going to be a Chinese aircraft carrier Port Moresby and we're going to turn around and be like, how did this happen? Mm. Mm. Now, we've touched a lot of hot button issues today. Thank you for yeah. being so honest and open. I'm going to finish this interview now with potentially your bread and milk. Uh, moment. Oh. I'm going to ask you, uh, Morrison couldn't well, name I don't the eat bread, bread, so. <laughs> well, you're lucky because the cuisine we're about to talk about oh, <laughs> doesn't involve that much gluten. <laughs> Lastly, Senator Keneally, can you please tell us oh. the key ingredients in the iconic Vietnamese cuisine oh. known as Gui Kun? No, I can't. 
Rice paper rolls, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I don't speak Vietnamese. In fact, one of the one of the um, hang-ups of growing up in America is you don't particularly get encouraged to learn a lot of second languages. Yeah. I have some very nascent Spanish. Uh, yeah. um, but, Toledo. Uh, Toledo, places. Ohio, yes. I guess you'd be learning how to... What? Pierogies. Uh, Toledo is uh, Hungarian, German, and Polish. Maybe, right. Mm. Quebecos. Or yeah, they're, yeah they're not far. Do you have any of those Some kind of um, Milwaukee Dutch? Like, you know, those are... Oh, the Pennsylvania Dutch, yeah, kind of, yeah. they call them, which are really Germans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, in fact, um, in my family background, I do, yes. Um, but uh, no, Toledo is uh, is heavily, well, at least was when I was growing up. It's probably diversified a bit, but heavily German. My father's family is German. So, oh, right. um, well, yeah. the most astronauts uh, come from Ohio. It's got the highest number of astronauts. Well, yes. Yeah, so Neil Armstrong is from Ohio. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We could go through a list of famous people from Ohio if you want. I'm not sure if your listeners are Drew Carey show. Drew Carey. Drew Carey. Katie yeah. Holmes, the actress. Yeah. In fact, her dad was my basketball coach, and her right. older sister was one of my good friends. Wow. So there you go. We got the ghost today. In fact, you know, um, I, I'm going to make a bold claim here. I reckon I'm one of the few people who knows both sets of Tom Cruise's in-laws. <laughs> That's pretty hectic. There wouldn't be too many people on the planet that know the Holmeses and, and the Kidmans. <laughs> oh, wow. That is, um, so, that's impressive. Yeah. Nicole's dad was in the Labour Party before. It was a Labour yeah. Party supporter before he passed away. And yeah. um, and, and I know Katie's family quite well. So Rightio. Well, the people of Fowler, will go, they'll vote with their feet after hearing yeah. that. <laughs> America's just a you know it's just a small version of Australia. It really, is, isn't it? I mean, um. it is. <laughs> South Canada, we call it. Everyone knows each other. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Senator Keneally. It's uh, it's been a great chat, and uh, yeah. thank you. You are now the first politician that we've interviewed in this federal election run-up that will be uh, known as the Decode series. Tune in this week. We are decoding the Labor Party as a whole. Uh, I know we did a bit of that in this interview, but we'll be going top to bottom from the tree of knowledge to Balmain, and you know further west to McGowan. McMowan, as we also call him, on the Batuta Advocate. Thank you the for Labor joining us. The Party was founded in Balmain. I just need to get that in okay, before well, you talk to any Queenslanders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that one. Yeah. <laughs>